You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, your host, and with me is Andy Spey, Danielle Shemtob, Lauren Horsch, Will Doran, and Colin Campbell. Um, this week, we learn more about a mega donor giving to the Republican Party and groups associated with uh, the lieutenant governor. Uh, there was a class action lawsuit uh, that advanced on over the Gen X water pollution issue. Uh, we have some prominent gay rights activists saying that Raleigh should be out of the running for Amazon's HQ2. And people on both sides of the political spectrum attacked a uh, what they call a slush fund uh, for the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Um, so let's start with the uh, donor to state Republicans. Uh, Colin, his name is Greg Lindbergh, and he's given a whole lot of money to a couple of uh, a super PAC and a political party-related committee tied to Dan Forrest, and we also learned that he's given a good portion of state Republicans' uh, recent fundraising um, so you dug in a little bit into who Greg Lindbergh is. So what did you find out? Yeah, so Greg Lindbergh is uh, he's a businessman in Durham, owns a company called Eli Global, which is basically this big sort of uh, investment firm, does a lot of mergers and acquisitions. So basically, uh, if you've got a business uh, that uh, Eli Global is interested in, they'll buy it for you, handle the finances, but keep the existing uh, leadership structure on the ground at that business and sort of uh, connect it with some of the similar businesses it owns. So a lot of their business interest is in the insurance industry. Uh, they've got a, another firm called Global Bankers Insurance Group that uh, is also an umbrella firm for a bunch of other insurance groups. Um, and then he's got um, some collection debt collection agencies. He's got some medical records uh, companies, some uh, eye care uh, technology sort of product uh, type things as well. Um, he's got a little bit in the publishing business. He actually got his start um, over, uh, I guess, close to 30 years ago with a small healthcare newsletter um, that he managed to sort of uh, launch him into the business world. Uh, and then I think starting in 2001, he started buying up other companies. And he's still somewhat in publishing. One of his uh, businesses is a uh, magazine publisher that has some titles that include uh, Knives Illustrated, Victorian Homes, and something to do with drag racing. It's kind of an eclectic mix of, uh, of magazines. I, I don't know if Knives Illustrated does a swimsuit issue, but uh, it, it's certainly an, an interesting title in his, his portfolio of, of different business he owns. Uh, but if, I, he, if I had a, if I got a subscription to a knife magazine, I would definitely want it to be illustrated. That yeah, would be, it would be good. Um, you um, learned also that he is not that political or has has not been very political uh, until recently. Yeah, this was interesting. So I wanted to figure out, you know, this, this is a guy who's describing his political interests as fairly nonpartisan. He's pointed out uh, that he's given in the past, uh, his, prior to this year, one of his biggest uh, contributions was to help the campaign of Wayne Goodwin for insurance commissioner. Uh, of course, uh, Lindbergh has some interest in the insurance business. Uh, so he had a uh, outside committee that uh, had a couple hundred do- thousand dollars uh, on TV ads that benefited Wayne Goodwin. Goodwin says he's not connected with this, doesn't really know the guy. Um, and of course, Goodwin's a Democrat. Uh, he lost that insurance commissioner bid and is now the head of the Demo- state Democratic Party. Uh, so when we asked uh, Lindbergh sort of why are you interested in politics all of a sudden, his uh, the statement that his attorney sent us was basically saying that, you know, he's uh, looking out for the good of the state and he's willing to support candidates on both sides of the aisle, be it Dan Forrest or Wayne Goodwin. Of course, those two men could not be more different politically. Um, but anyway, so we looked at, you know, 
what's his voter history, which is, you know, easy to find. I can go online and see your voter history and, you know, which ballot you took in the primary if you happen to be unaffiliated. And uh, Lindbergh is indeed an unaffiliated voter, uh, but he's only listed in the state as having voted once. He uh, did the same-day registration provision a couple days ahead of the 2016 general election, voted then, and that's the only time in his years of living in North Carolina that he there's a record of him having been registered to vote and having voted, and he's, he's listed as uh, unaffiliated on that voter registration. Uh, his wife is a little bit more active in voting, uh, has voted several times, uh, and she is a registered Democrat. Uh, she's also uh, been involved in some of the campaign contributions he's made in the past. Um, convenient way to get around the uh, $5,200 limit for uh, individual campaign committees is uh, to get your spouse to also make a donation. Um, so when he was donating to a couple of uh, General Assembly candidates, um, he had his wife also uh, give as well. So sort of very interesting to figure out what his uh, political philosophy is. Um, I think early on it was fairly focused on uh, folks with ties to insurance. So obviously he gave money, as I mentioned, to Wayne Goodwin. Uh, he and his business associates also were responsible for about $30,000 worth of donations uh, early in 2017 to State Senator Wesley Meredith, um, who's uh, down in the Fayetteville area. But uh, the, the main connection there would be that Meredith is the co-chairman of the Senate Insurance Committee, so handles a lot of legislation uh, relating to insurance. Uh, I talked to Meredith on the phone uh, yesterday, and he's told me uh, he's never met uh, with Lindbergh, doesn't really know what his policy interests are. Um, but I will note that I've found that the Global Bankers Insurance Group that Lindbergh owns does have lobbyists at the legislature. So they have uh, obviously some policy interest over there that they've got lobbyists working on. Uh, not sure exactly what those are. Um, but again, it sort of remains a mystery where he goes from, I just care about insurance and I'm giving you know, pretty much on par with anybody who has a fair amount of money and is a mild interest in politics in North Carolina um, to essentially the biggest donor in the state. Um, making people like Art Pope and Bob Luddy, who also give to the NC Republican Party and major candidates look like they're, you know, just throwing pennies down on the dollar compared to what uh, Greg Lindbergh is doing with his $3 million worth of, of donations in a fairly short period of time. So one of the groups he gave to is the Republican Council of State Committee. Um, it's one of these political party type groups that can be formed by elected officials. And um, the uh, spending there was interesting. You found some TV equipment. Yeah, well, I should start to sort of explain the Republican Council of State Committee. This is a relatively new animal in state politics. Uh, back a couple of years ago, the legislature passed a law uh, that allowed uh, leaders of a particular political party, both on the Council of State, the State House, and the State Senate, uh, to create sort of their own uh, caucus committees, in a sense, uh, separate from the uh, state political parties, but they could function like political parties. And sort of the big aspect of that is you can make un accept unlimited donations. Um, this came about because there was some friction between um, uh, the establishment Republicans and the, at the time the head of the state Republican Party, this guy Hassan Harnett, who was later ousted from his position. Uh, so some folks wanted to have a, a vehicle by which they could raise money uh, without going through the, the state party. Uh, that issue kind of went away, but the law stayed in place. Um, and it's mostly not been used very heavily. Uh, the Democrats haven't used it at all, um, but the Republican Council of State members 
we're able to form this group. Uh, and it's pretty much been, it's just been led by Dan Forrest and his staff running it. Uh, my understanding is a lot of the other uh, Republican Council of State members, like the Labor Commissioner, Ag Commissioner, really aren't involved in, in this particular organization. Uh, but anyway, their only uh, donor in 2017 was Greg Lindbergh, who gave about a million dollars. Uh, and most of their spending, uh, they've, they've left a lot of money on the table at the end of the year that you know probably gets spent later. Uh, but most of the spending in 2017 was on uh, about $40,000 worth of video production equipment, uh, going presumably to an office that they have downtown. Uh, this is happening at the same time uh, that a TV studio is going into the lieutenant governor's official office uh, on Blunt Street, uh, and that's being funded by a nonprofit to essentially donating equipment to the office of the lieutenant governor uh, with the idea that it would be used for official business. Uh, so Forrest has the ability to make videos talking about policy issues wearing his lieutenant governor hat using this TV studio that's already there at the lieutenant governor's office. But if he wants to do campaign stuff, now he has potentially has uh, a TV studio uh, funded by essentially Lindbergh um, that can do campaign messages. So uh, to the extent he wants to create his own sort of media empire and uh, produce his own videos and get his own message out there, which remember, Forrest is going to run for governor in 2020. Uh, but he has fairly low name recognitions. Uh, so what he's trying to do is uh, build his profile and be a more recognizable face and uh, name to North Carolina voters. And to have TV studios for both his official stuff and his campaign stuff is going to be uh, super helpful to him in uh, raising his profile. Um, Danielle, Forrest also uh, has another committee, which is uh, his super PAC. And I guess I say his because he uh, announced that he was raising money for it and the money that went to it was from Greg Lindbergh. Uh, but there are some questions that have been raised about what kind of connection he can have to the Super PAC. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. So the Super PAC, it's called Truth and Prosperity. Um, so he, you're right, yeah, he in an email kind of announced that he'd raised um, about a million dollars for for that pack, and as you said, the invest most of that was from um, a donation from Greg Lindbergh. But the interesting thing is that the law is sort of unclear on coordination between candidates and super PACs. It's the Citizens United. There's been a lot of questions about this kind of thing. But state law, we I talked to the board of state board of elections, and they told me that coordination for fundraising is okay, but coordination for expenditures is not okay. So. But at the same time, the Democrats called the donation illegal, and there's some questions from um, a particular group called Democracy North Carolina, which sent a letter to the Board of Elections, and they were kind of claiming that it, it was illegal coordination. So it's not completely clear who's right in this situation. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we'll keep watching that. Um, so the other uh, one of the other pieces of news this week was the uh, approval. I think we mentioned last week that the Atlantic Coast Pipeline going through North Carolina had been approved late last week. Um, but this week we found out about a um, – well, I guess we had found out at the time that there was a fund related to it. But we found out some more details about how this fund is going to work. It's what's being called a mitigation fund by the governor's office um, to, I guess, uh, improve the uh, – to kind of mitigate the damage that the pipeline might cause. Right, Colin? Yeah. Um, and, but there's been some criticism of this fund because it's uh, – because of its connection to the governor and the governor's authority over it. So tell us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah. So this was an agreement signed between the governor's office and the companies that are developing the pipeline. And it was announced the exact same day as the uh, Department of Environmental Quality uh, announced that it was issuing the permits to build the pipeline. Uh, the governor's office insists that these were, things were negotiated separately and there wasn't necessarily a connection uh, between the two. Uh, the mitigation agreement throws about, I think, $58, 59000000 million into a special fund 
uh, that's designed, one, to sort of mitigate the environmental impacts, uh, but also to do some economic development in the communities along the pipeline route uh, to allow some of them to actually tap into the pipeline and get the benefits of having this natural gas uh, flowing through their communities. Uh, but the interesting thing about it is that it's controlled by the governor's office. The uh, agreement calls for Cooper to issue an executive order that uh, would dictate how the money is spent. Um, and uh, it wouldn't really go through the legislature at all. So that's where um, a lot of these concerns comes in. And it's created this sort of uh, strange alliance of environmental groups that oppose the pipeline and are uh, skeptical of, of this uh, particular agreement, as well as conservative groups uh, that are skeptical of the governor. You have people like former state rep uh, Paul Skip Stam, who's uh, raising concerns about thinking that this is some kind of quid pro quo, that uh, these companies are essentially I think in their words, bribing the governor uh, to issue these permits. Now, of course, I should stress, the governor's office says these are two separate things. That's not what's going on, according to them. Um, but there's the potential some legal action resulting from that, um, just sort of with the constitutional concerns of typically the budgeting of money that comes into the state is the responsibility of the legislature. So it's uh, these folks are arguing that it's unusual for the governor just to, uh, to make a deal with a company and get this money that's completely up to him how to spend it. Um, and so we've heard from uh, former Governor Pat McCrory, who uh, says on his Facebook page, is, quote, is this even legal? Um, and raising concerns about why more Republicans in uh, the news media weren't uh, raising more red flags about it. Uh, Stam is looking at uh, legal possibilities, and you've got the environmentalist groups that are uh, equally concerned about uh, what's going on here. Okay. And Civitas, which I think is one of the critics, has sued in the past over funds and uh, uh, where the money in various state funds goes, although this is a little different because it's controlled by the governor and not by the legislature. Yeah, and there have been a few. I, th I think the Cooper administration, if they wanted to, could point to a couple instances in the past where the governor's office has sort of been responsible for some kind of legal settlement funds coming into the state. Um, I think there's once I forget what the issue was, but there was something recently where uh, I think it was a move the Volvo emissions thing where uh, the Cooper administration was soliciting ideas on how to spend that money. Um, and evidently, they were going to have uh, a, a large portion of uh, decision making as to where that actually goes. Uh, yeah, that was um, the, uh, the lawsuit over the emissions for it was the yeah, Volvo or Volkswagen. Um, I think it was Volkswagen. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, the lawsuit said that the governor's office gets to choose how to spend that money in North Carolina. It got like $90 million or something like that. So even more than this pipeline fund. Um, but the legislature changed that money in uh, the 2016 budget, saying that no, despite what the settlement says, Cooper can't decide what to do with that money. The legislature gets to decide. And Cooper sued over that. Um, and that's, I think, still winding its way through the court system. He's saying that that's you know, an unconstitutional power grab by the legislature. So it could be that, you know, whatever the courts say about that fund and who gets to control that uh, could have some bearing on this pipeline thing, too. One of the many uh, lawsuits uh, from the governor kind of winding its way through. Um, the other lawsuit that we saw some action on this week, Will, is, the, um, is one of the uh, class action lawsuits against um, the companies responsible, or thought to be responsible anyway, for a lot of the Gen X pollution uh, in southeastern North Carolina, um, so a new complaint was filed in this uh, what the uh, in this class action lawsuit. And what did, what are the accusations? Yeah, so this lawsuit has been going on since October. It's uh, uh, on behalf of uh, anywhere between several hundred and several hundred thousand people in southeastern North Carolina. Um, it, you know, it's 
obviously a pretty big area. Uh, and uh, these plaintiffs right now, the, uh, the main class is a couple hundred families who live south of Fayetteville, um, are suing uh, Chemours and DuPont, uh, which are two companies that have operated a factory there that's uh, been alleged to be dumping this chemical called C8 into the Cape Fear River. Um, and they say that these companies uh, had internal testing that showed that this chemical was dangerous, had serious, serious health risks, and that they ignored that testing and dumped this stuff into the river anyways, and then went on to also lie to the state about it and tell the state that they weren't uh, dumping the chemical into the river. Um, should note that the state has said the exact same thing. Uh, DEQ has said that the companies lied to them about uh, what they were doing with this chemical. Uh, apparently they said when they were getting, when they were asking for their permit to discharge stuff from the factory, they were saying, well, we'll di be just discharging some things, but all of the Gen X stuff we're going to be uh, taking care of in a different way. We're not going to be putting any of that into the river. Um, and so that was one of the reasons why the state has since pulled this company's permit. They said they lied on the permit. Um, I don't believe that the state has gone so far as this lawsuit has um, in terms of, you know, accusing these companies of basically knowingly, you know, knowingly polluting. Um, and there were, there were some interesting um, uh, medical stats in this lawsuit that they cited. They, uh, they looked up CDC data and found that um, all of the counties along the river that this stuff had been put into south of Fayetteville, basically between Fayetteville and Wilmington, had among the highest concentrations of liver disease in the country. And they're saying that uh, this chemical Gen X and one that are related to it, C8, uh, cause liver disease. And uh, similarly, they said that these chemicals cause certain types of cancers and that those types of cancers are in these counties at an above average rate. Um, so they're alleging these, uh, you know, pretty serious health claims. They're asking for millions of dollars. Um, and both Chemours and DuPont uh, earlier in 2017 settled a class action lawsuit over these exact same chemicals in West Virginia for close to $700 million. So, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, we're headed down the same path here in North Carolina. Um, but obviously, uh, you know, people of southeastern North Carolina are, you know, certainly concerned about this. Okay. Um, anything else happening on Gen X? It seems like there's a development like every other day on, on Gen X. Uh, but Yeah, uh, well, it seems like the more that time goes on, the more we hear about other spills of Gen X into the river that the company didn't alert the state to. Um, there's at least one spill that was so large that it's actually being investigated for criminal charges um, that happened back in October, I believe. Um, I don't remember the exact date. and But there have been a couple others since then um, that the, the state is looking into. And, um, you know, so you've got those details keep coming out. You've got, obviously, this fight in the legislature over funding. Um, you know, we've talked about that on the podcast before, but basically the state says, hey, we have no idea to figure out, you know, beyond Gen X, what more of these things that are called emerging contaminants, basically untested, unregulated chemicals that the scientific community doesn't really know about. The state says, we have no way to figure out, you know, what's in the water, really. Um, the only way that really anyone knows about Gen X is some, uh, some scientists at NC State and some other places kind of started looking into this themselves and then, you know, kind of alerted the state and everything sort of snowballed from there. Um, so that's still an ongoing fight in the legislature. Uh, 
House passed a bill to give funding, you know, like I'm, I'm sure we talked about this on the podcast a week or two ago. Um, Senate declined to, and so we'll see what happens, uh, you know, whenever they're back in session again, if the, if the Senate decides to, you know, be persuaded to give this funding or if, uh, if there's some sort of different compromise they come to or if we just keep going forward with nothing. Lauren, uh, the legislature talked a little bit about taxes this week, but it was kind of an obscure uh, area of taxation that is uh, is not one we hear about real often. Um, so you went to that meeting. What What's going on? Yeah, so this might not uh, affect us city slickers here in Wake County and Durham County, uh, but in a, in a bill that was passed last year, uh, the North Carolina Farm Act of two, 2017, which was Senate Bill 615, um, a study was commissioned to look at how taxing or how exempting aging farm equipment from uh, property taxes would impact um, you know the, the tax base essentially and so there's, there's kind of a quirk in this so property taxes are administered and collected by the counties but the general assembly at the state level oversees them so they can decide you know this is property tax this isn't taxed etc etc Anyway, so they decided to commission the study to look at aging farm equipment, and this can be anything from your combine or um, what they used is tractors because those are the main big equipment that almost any farm would use. Um, so they, instead of looking at all farm equipment, they just looked at tractors um, to kind of make it easier for lawmakers and the general public to understand. Um, and the Department of Revenue found that if we exempted all tractors, all tractors, no matter what age, we could lose uh, $17.6 million in taxes. Um, And so the question really before a lot of lawmakers is, do we exempt aging farm equipment? And if we do, do we exempt it at an 80% rate? So that means we'd only tax 20% of its value. Or, you know, how do we define what is an aging piece of equipment? Um, So they were really looking at um, equipment, you know, built before the 1990s and then after. So some of those, you know, they're, they're still working. Some of them, you know, have been refurbished to work longer. But these are like multi-million dollar pieces of equipment. If you know any farmers, like these are huge investments. So they are built to last. So we do have some tractors in rural parts of the, rural parts of the state that are still working from, you know, the 60s and 70s. Um, so they're really trying to figure out, you know, at what age, because there's no AARP for farming equipment. We don't know what is considered senior um, or aging equipment. Um, What's the goal? Is it to help family farms stay in business, essentially? Uh, what What are they trying to, to, to do here? Is there that wasn't really covered, and I didn't get into the, the nitty-gritty of it, but it was really to help the farmers because, you know, some of them are suffering, Um so they're really trying to figure out, you know, how can we help our farmers in North Carolina? Because, you know, there's still the majority of counties in North Carolina are rural, so there still are a lot of farmers. But it's also hard for them to pinpoint how much farm equipment is in the state because, you know, the Department of Revenue, who was in charge of this, this study, you know, reached out to all 100 counties and said, please send us all information on X, Y, and Z, but only 18 counties responded. So they were only really going off of, you know, data from like Cabarrus County and Sampson County. Um, So we don't know what they're going to do yet. No decision was made. Um, But if you're really into farming or your family is, you know, a farming family, I think you really need to pay attention to, you know, what they decide to do with this aging farm equipment. Okay. All right. 
Um, and uh, Andy, uh, I wanted to ask you about the uh, story that um, you wrote yesterday with Abby Bennett of uh, our newsroom. So um, there are some groups uh, who are n- not happy about Raleigh and some other cities being on the list of possible candidates of finalists, I should say, for Amazon's second headquarters. Um, and they're upset specifically about state policy. So um, what are they uh, asking for and uh, what are they upset about? So uh, it's an ad hoc group of national uh, rights uh, nonprofits that want they, – they want Amazon to move to states that have protections for gay and lesbian and transgender employees, which North Carolina does not have. And so they uh, – I guess it was earlier this week – they launched this campaign called uh, No Gay, No Way, quote-unquote, uh, .com. Which our browsers would not let us go to. Right, the, uh, yeah. Web browsers would not let us go to at the uh, at the News and Observer at first. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether they're outdated or if they're discriminatory browsers. Uh, but, yes, they wouldn't let us go there at first. But when you go there, you see that uh, they've singled out nine states where uh, Amazon is – uh, considering moving to one of their cities. Uh, obviously, this uh, earlier, I guess it was last year, a lot of legislators thought they had done enough to change uh, North Carolina's reputation uh, across the country in repealing HB2, the so-called bathroom bill, which we've talked about ad nauseum. Um, as PolitiFact noted, uh, it has been uh, – it was repealed but only – I don't think we put a percentage on it, but um, it wasn't fully repealed. It, sure, there's still a moratorium uh, against local non-discrimination protections, and that lasts, I think, until uh, 2020, right? That's right. Yeah, and so. so that is sort of at the heart of their argument. Um, and so the mayor came out and said Raleigh has always been a place that embraces diversity. Um, and then we had uh, Cooper's spokesman, Ford Porter, came out and gave a statement on Cooper's behalf saying um, that uh, obviously North Carolina does not discriminate and Cooper encourages diversity and uh, wants uh, everyone protected legally. Uh, And they also pointed out that the governor last year uh, signed an executive order, which uh, I'm going to get the wording wrong because I'm not an attorney, but uh, it prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, gender, sex, all that, sexual orientation, um, and his cabinet as well as companies that contract with the state. So um, North Carolina, in in the eyes of lawmakers here, is making progress toward being more open and less discriminatory, but obviously um, we're still in the crosshairs uh, for some groups. Yeah. It'll be interesting if uh, if there's a sort of an organized effort. I don't think we've heard a whole lot from the human rights campaign, right, which is sort of one of the major uh, uh, groups encouraging corporate uh, um, action against North Carolina during the uh, HB2. Right. We haven't heard from them, but we did hear from Equality NC, which is, I would say, the foremost grassroots uh, rights group um, in North Carolina. And they said they neither support uh, no, nor oppose uh, that effort. You know, I, this is sort of an economic um, thing, and there are lots of people that, you know, oppose Amazon moving here for different reasons, whether or not they want, you know, the, the property values to go up, the traffic con- congestion, all this. But Equality NC 
said they didn't want to get in and take a stand one way or another, but that uh, they sort of echoed some of the things that uh, the no gay, no way uh, effort said, which is that more work needs to be done so that gay and transgender people feel protected and feel safe. All right. I think we'll leave it there unless anybody's got anything else to uh, talk about before we take a break and come back with Headliner of the Week. And uh, you'll hear some new uh, tape leading into Headliner of the Week. Uh, Colin, you know about uh, this. You can tell us about how this came about. Yeah, uh, if you're a longtime listener to Domecast, you remember the original host of Domecast, Andy Curlis, who's now with the uh, NC Port Council. And for a long time after he departed, uh, we still had his voice at the beginning of Headliner of the Week, which was a, a nice little rap that uh, – Former uh, Domecast panelist, former insider reporter uh, Ben Brown had come up with uh, to celebrate uh, Andy's last day uh, hosting Domecast and his last day working at the News and Observer. Um, and since, uh, Jordan, you've been hosting Domecast for a, a good bit of time here since uh, you became uh, politics editor at the NNO, we figured we needed to uh, refresh the uh, introduction to Domecast. And so uh, Ben, no longer, while he's no longer working in uh, journalism, was uh, generous enough to uh, work up something that uh, would uh, – work with your voice and and your way of saying headliner of the week so listen for that after the break all right get ready all right we'll be right back with headliner of the week i'm a retired school psychologist and helping people was my thing after my stroke when meals on wheels started i was on the other end of the stick so to speak my name is julius gaines creative writer poet photographer One in six seniors faces the threat of hunger, and millions more live in isolation. Drop off a hot meal and say a quick hello. Volunteer for Meals on Wheels by donating your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Headliner of the week, 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 headliner of the week. Headliner of the week. Who's hot? And we're back with Headliner of the Week. Hope everybody enjoyed that audio interlude. Uh, that will be a, a staple of uh, Domecast from now on. Uh, and we'll start with Colin. Colin Campbell, who's your Headliner of the Week? I'm going with somebody who I hadn't heard of before this week, and that's uh, Beth Monahan. She is a businesswoman down in the Charlotte area. Uh, she's made headlines, in fact, in some national outlets um, because she has announced that she will be uh, challenging State Senator Dan Bishop, who uh, is a Charlotte Republican, uh, best known for being the lead sponsor of House Bill 2. Um, and Monahan, not surprisingly, is uh, going after Bishop over House Bill 2. But here's the, the interesting piece. She's uh, challenging him in the Republican primary. Bishop already has, I think, at least one or two uh, Democratic challengers this year. And uh, one expects that House Bill 2 will be a big issue for them. Uh, but Monaghan's announcement means that uh, Bishop is going to have to defend his uh, record on HB2 in the Republican primary as well. Um, and this is interesting because Monaghan, while a, a, I guess a lifelong Republican, uh, has a son who's gay. Uh, And so she feels like this is personal. She thinks that uh, House Bill 2 and uh, some of the social issues have sort of gone away from the the principles that she believes the Republican Party stands for. Um, And so she's going to be challenging Dan Forrest and uh, coming out swinging already with her criticism of uh, his actions over House Bill 2. So that should be a fascinating uh, Republican primary to watch uh, down in Charlotte. So uh, Beth Monaghan is uh, my pick for this week's headliner. 
Okay, so Beth Monahan challenging Dan Bishop, and he is uh, in a pretty Republican district, I would assume. Yeah, um, I, I think everything in Mecklenburg is not super tilted towards the Republicans, so it's, it's more competitive than a lot of places in the state, uh, given the way the district lines are drawn, but uh, certainly a district that has not caused uh, Republicans any trouble in the past. This is the district, I should note, uh, uh, before Bishop moved over from the House to the Senate uh, was Bob Rucho's district. Uh, Rucho, a fairly prominent uh, Republican senator who's now over on the UNC Board of Governors. Okay. All right. Beth Monahan, uh, challenger to Dan Bishop in the Republican primary, uh, in the hat for headliner of the week. Will Doran, who's your headliner of the week? Uh, mine is going to be uh, Nick Oxner, a TV reporter for WBTV, also down in the Charlotte area. Charlotte's cleaning up and headliner so far. Um, he, uh, he's he been in the news for a couple reasons. He was apparently in court the other day uh, trying to get some police body cam footage released, which is normally the purview of lawyers, uh, but apparently uh, <laughs> he uh, had previously ran out the uh, station's uh, legal budget on different public records requests that he had, so he had to go and uh, represent himself. But uh, he was a little bit more in his element uh, about a week ago uh, in a story I wrote about uh, uh, chasing down uh, Glenn McNeil, who's the head of the State Highway Patrol, uh, newly installed by Governor Roy Cooper. Um, there had been an audit out uh, last year about um, troopers who had been uh, violating highway patrol policies and commuting uh, for for longer between their houses and where they were assigned for their workstations uh, than they were supposed to. You're only supposed to commute 20 or fewer miles, and some of them were commuting, you know, 100 or more miles um, in their state-owned cars. And so the, uh, the state put out an audit saying, you know, hey— this is bad. Also, you know, just FYI, Highway Patrol, a lot of these people lied to us about it when we first started asking and told us that they, you know, live somewhere else and then, you know, came out that, no, actually they did. So they, the state recommended that, uh, you know, that the Highway Patrol consider disciplining some of these troopers and that they put uh, GPS into the cars to, you know, be able to audit and make sure this wasn't happening on their own. And then also, you know, that possibly uh, give some exemptions for uh, senior level people. And so what it turns out is that uh, the Highway Patrol did immediately give exemptions to around a dozen of the highest ranking people, telling them, hey, it's okay for you to live wherever you want. Uh, There's one guy who commutes from Asheville to Raleigh in his state-owned car. Um, And uh, uh, so Oxner was uh, literally chasing uh, McNeil, the head of the uh, Highway Patrol asking him, you know, hey, do you think it's okay for, you know, you to be authorizing these people to, you know, kind of have these wasteful commutes? uh, And, you know, do you think that's good policy for, you know, them to have these exemptions? And uh, the chief was not really a big fan of this line of questioning. He he answered the questions for a while, but eventually tried to get in an elevator. He said he had to go to a meeting, and Oxner tried to follow him in, and the chief kind of put his hand on his chest and blocked him from getting the into the elevator. And uh, Oxner characterized this as a shove. Um, the uh, the Department of Public Safety disagreed. Um, uh, at, we wrote about it. You can check out my story. We've got the video in there if you want to decide for yourself. Uh, whether it was a, a shove, a block, a, a push, you know, just an extended arm, you know, whatever, uh, however you might characterize it. But uh, I'm, 
I'm not making any, uh, <laughs> I'm not giving it any definitions of my own. I think I'll just let everyone else uh, make up their mind on that one. But uh, so, you know, while the, the Highway Patrol did give these exemptions to senior people, it's not clear if they ever did anything to do the other recommendations that the auditor's office gave them, which was to put GPS into cars and also to uh, punish the troopers that had been violating policy and then were caught lying about it. Um, I asked and got no response. So I'm going to ask again, and I'll let you faithful listeners know uh, if I ever hear anything back. Okay. We'll keep following on highway patrol commutes. And uh, meantime, Nick Oxner, the WBTV reporter, Uh, who often writes about state politics, is in the hat for Headliner of the Week. Uh, Lauren Horsch, who's your Headliner of the Week? I'm going to pick the legislature, because guess what, guys? We're still in session. Um, It might not seem like it, but we are. Um, And we might still be in session by February 12th um, and longer. We don't know for sure yet, but we will see our first votes. Late next week, I do believe Thursday or Friday. Um, it's unclear what we're going to vote on, but we're still in session, so anything could happen. Um, and this is just, you know, one of my soapbox issues of we're here for a long time, even though it's the short session, um, or this is supposed to be the year of the short session. But maybe we'll go until the short session starts. We never know. But um, so I'm going to throw the legislature in for headliner of the week for not making headlines because they're doing nothing right now. All right. The non-headliner of the week is the legislature. Uh, all right. Danielle Shemtab, what's your, who's your headliner of the week? So my headliner of the week is Grace Laughlin. She's a fifth grader at Penny Road Elementary School. She um, has a really kind of interesting story. She, one day the governor was visiting the school and she had a cold, but she thought it was the flu, but her mom told her, no, you, you don't have a fever. Like, it's just a cold. You know, how many times do you get to meet the governor? But she insisted, no, I don't want to get the governor sick. He has to run the state. And she um, was also a budding journalist. So kind of, I know for me at least, can, can relate to that one. Um, she worked for PNN is what uh, <laughs> really? I read. Yeah, I think that was the name of the school. It starts yeah. with a P and then News yeah, Network. Yeah, assume, Penn, so. yeah. And she, so then she ended up um, asking for an interview later and she got to go down to the Capitol and interview the governor. And she actually got to ask him some pretty, you know, tough questions, I would say. Um, so like she asked him, what do you do when you put out a new law and people don't agree with you? Uh, she asked him how he, how he promotes himself without sounding like bragging. So pretty promising career. Maybe. Yeah, I feel like she got years. a scoop there because she got him <laughs> to say that apparently he describes himself as an introvert, yeah. which I didn't know. So points to her for, yeah. for getting that little piece of information. <laughs> She's yeah. a tough questioner. <laughs> All right. Grace Laughlin. Uh, how old is she? Uh, she's in fifth grade. Eleven. So Eleven, you said. Okay. Uh, Grace Laughlin, 11-year-old cub reporter in the hat for Headliner of the Week. And finally, Andy Spay, who's your Headliner of the Week? I'm going to go with uh, State Rep Mike Clampett from Swain County. Uh, and I'm this w- this story appeared in the Mountaineer. I'm not quite sure where that is. In Haywood County. Yeah, Waynesville. Waynesville. All right. Shout out to Waynesville for being at this town hall where Mike Clampett said that marijuana could be North Carolina's next, quote, cash crop. Uh, This uh, story uh, that the insider picked up uh, sort of gave us a glimpse into what his constituents, what Clampett's constituents were asking him about. And he said one of the number one emails he gets uh, has to do, repeatedly, has to do with marijuana as an alternative type drug. And Clampett said he is not for uh, marijuana for uh, recreational use, but he is in favor of 
marijuana for uh, medicinal use so long as it doesn't have the hallucinogenic effects, which surprised me. Clampett is a uh, he's a Republican, and he's this is only first or second uh, term. First term, yeah. First term, yeah. Uh, so he had some good quotes in here, uh, particularly, uh, let's see, oh, we'll scroll. He said his dad uh, used uh, medicinal marijuana when he had treatment for a failing kidney and a gallbladder uh, back when they lived in Portland, Oregon. Um, and so uh, the quote, this is a great quote. He says, quote, he, he was remembering what his dad got. Uh, he said, you get these little squares. These are edible medicinal marijuana. You get these little squares, and they're 30 bucks or whatever. And I say, I know what I want for Christmas, he said, and the crowd collectively chuckled. Uh, and apparently this was a conversation he had with, his, I guess, his, his dad's provider uh, of medicinal marijuana. She said, no, we're not sending it to you. I said, fine, I'm flying out there for New Year's. Uh, so there's this great description in The Mountaineer of Mike Clampett telling this story uh, of his dad getting medicinal marijuana and how he is in favor of it, which might be, come as a surprise to some people. Um, he's also in favor of growing hemp, uh, which contains, ne- as, as the writer notes, negligible amounts of THC, uh, the psychoactive chemical in marijuana. So there you go, my headliner, Mike Clampett, proponent for uh, marijuana at, for medicinal use. Gotta love the people of uh, Western North Carolina living up to stereotypes and emailing their state rep about almost nothing but marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike Clampett uh, in the hat for headliner of the week for his Waynesville Town Hall. So uh, we have Beth Monahan, Nick, uh, Nick Oxner, the legislature, Grace Laughlin, and Mike Clampett. Uh, I'm gonna have to uh, go with one of the journalists because, you know. Um, we're journalists. We appreciate journalists. Um, so it's got to be, yeah, it's down to either Oxner or, uh, or Grace Laughlin. But uh, I think I'm going to go with Grace Laughlin, uh, Danielle's pick. So um, a little tap, tip of the hat to her for getting an exclusive with the governor, which is, you know, not easy. And, and she didn't uh, even have to chase him for it. Just <laughs> <laughs> <This> being shoved. <laughs> no one was shoved in the interchange between, between Roy Cooper and, uh, and uh, Grace Laughlin. And he even uh, shared some revealing personal details. Uh, so good on her. Uh, and she didn't want to give infect uh, the governor with her with her cold. Also good. So uh, Grace Laughlin, Cub Reporter, is our headliner of the week, and that means Danielle is our winner to this week. All right, uh, that's it for Domecast. Uh, catch us next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.